We've been in this passage for now four weeks, and what we've been doing is taking a major theme from this passage, which is also typically a major theme of the whole Gospel of John, and we've been examining it in depth. And so we've looked already at life and light and glory last week. Today we finish our series by looking at grace and truth. I have only two points in my outline this morning. First, I'd like to look at the fullness of God's grace and truth in Jesus, mostly from verse 14. And then secondly, I'd like to look at the influence of God's grace on us, mostly from verse 16. So the fullness and the influence of God's grace. So look, please, with me at verse 14. Familiar verse, I'm sure, for many of us, and certainly through this season, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we looked at this verse last week, so it should be a little bit, you should have a little background to this by now, but the point of this verse is that the Son, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, reveals God through his becoming human, through his incarnation. Jesus shows us who God is. He reveals God to us. We wouldn't know God had Jesus not revealed him to us. And he reveals himself through Jesus by showing us his glory. We talked about glory as the expression of God's essence. So when we talk about God and his glory, glory is God expressing himself. He's revealing himself. His attributes, his character, his, his power, who he is, his personality, that's glory. So when we gather and we sing glory or, or we say the glory of God was here, what we're really saying is that God has revealed himself here, that we know him through his revelation. So John says we have seen his glory, we have seen what God is like through the only Son from the Father, through Jesus. And that glory is particularly expressed in grace and truth. So God's glory is revealed uniquely and, intimate, and intimately and ultimately in Jesus, God's Son. He's the definitive self-expression of God. We see that glory through Him, and we understand that glory to be grace and truth particularly applied to us. Now, if you remember last week's sermon, and I always have to say that carefully because then I think, do I remember last week's sermon? And often that's not the case. But we looked at Exodus 33 and 34 as the background for John 1. And that's really important. Uh, and what I've learned in my own Christian walk is that the more I read the Bible, the more connections I find between different passages. And of course, the writers of the New Testament have been immersed in the Old Testament. So when John is writing, there's lots of things on his mind that he's working into his gospel. And so it really helps to know the Old Testament and particular passages like Exodus 33 and 34. So when we read about the word dwelling or pitching his tent or tabernacling among us, which is the word here, when we read about seeing his glory, that reminds us, because it certainly is on John's mind, about the time when Moses experienced God's presence in the tent 
in the tabernacle. And when God showed him his glory on Mount Sinai, when God gave him the words of the law written on two stone tablets. So if you want to turn back with me again to Exodus 34, 5 through 8. Now we'll show you how this is relevant to our conversation today. Exodus 34, 5. This is in response to Moses' request to see God's glory. Remember Moses' audacious prayer. Lord, show me your glory, meaning show me yourself as you are. I want to see, I want to know you as you are. This is what God does. Exodus 34, 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. So Moses asked God to show him his glory, and God says, you can't really see me, so I'm going to hide you. I'm going to appear to you in a cloud. You're going to see a glimpse of me as I pass by, but I will hide you in the rock. So you will see a little bit of me, but the revelation of glory comes verbally through God proclaiming his name. And so God simply describes himself. God says, this is who I am. I'm a God that's merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm also a God who takes sin seriously, and I don't just clear the guilty. There's punishment, there's wrath as well. This is God revealing his character. God simply listing his attributes to Moses. That's what glory is. It's an expression of who God is. And when Moses hears it, and yes, he sees the glory too, but I think it's the hearing of God's name, the hearing of God's attributes that brings him down to the ground in worship. Now that's in the background. And John, if we read the Old Testament right now, we get to John and we read verse 14, and John says, the word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. The verbal proclamation of God's name on Mount Sinai became enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of God that Moses longed for can now be seen in the face of Jesus, the only Son of God who reveals God to us. This is how one commentator puts it. The glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by ineffable grace and truth was the very same glory that John and his friends saw in the word made flesh. This is the big piece to understand here, that God's glory is revealed in Christ. It's in flesh. That verbal revelation of who God is is now that word became flesh, became uh, a revelation of God in Jesus. But notice when I read that quote from uh, the commentator that he said that the divine goodness was characterized by ineffable grace and 
truth. Now, why is he putting John's language in Exodus? Because as many scholars believe, and I agree with that, John says, full of grace and truth. He says that it's parallel to abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What John is doing, he's paraphrasing what God said of himself in Exodus 34, 6. These kind of things appear when we are familiar with Scripture. And scholars who spend their time comparing words and accounts and drawing parallels and correlating ideas get this. And we get it if we know the Scriptures. What John is doing is he's saying this is how God revealed himself. So verbally, God proclaimed his name and he says, I am the Lord, I abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. And John says, now the ultimate revelation of Jesus comes to us full of grace and truth, comes to us abounding in that steadfast love and faithfulness. If we keep the background of Exodus 33 and 34 in mind, and if we correlate grace and truth with steadfast love and faithfulness, then verse 17 makes a lot of sense. You know, we struggle with that verse as you read it. You're wondering why is he bringing up the law and Moses here? But if you remember Exodus 33 and 34 and the correlation of these phrases, then it makes sense. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So God expressed himself in the law given through Moses and Mount Sinai when he saw the glory of God, when he was given the tablets of the law. But then his ultimate self-expression came through Jesus Christ. Moses heard God say, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But Jesus embodied it for us. This is why in verse 16, John says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The grace of the law, the grace of the revelation of God to Moses, that glory in the cloud, that glory that's veiled and yet is still breaking through. That was grace. But now another grace comes, and this grace is much greater because it comes from the fullness of God. And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Yes, we received the law. We received whatever degree of revelation of God's glory, but now in Jesus is the ultimate self-expression of God, the ultimate grace, grace upon grace, abounding through the person of Jesus. Moses wanted to see God's glory. But as John tells us, nobody can see God. We're, we're too sinful. We can't see Him, of course. We would be destroyed if we come in contact directly with God. But Jesus, who is God Himself, who is with God, part of the Trinity, God Himself at His Father's side in an intimate relationship with the Father, in His lap, as it were, He has made God known. Grace upon grace the grace of the law, the grace of the revelation to Moses, but now a greater grace of revelation of God fully, ultimately, in Jesus. D.A. Carson, a great New Testament scholar, tells a story about befriending a fellow college student in Canada 
he was a Muslim from Pakistan named Muhammad. And he had never read the Bible, uh, never been exposed to Christianity in his home country. So he goes to, comes to college in Canada. Carson befriends him and, and suggests that he should read the Gospel of John. And Muhammad does. He reads it. Then one Christmas, Muhammad accepts Carson's invitation to visit his parents in Ottawa over the Christmas break. And so Carson takes him to see the city of Ottawa, and they end up at the Parliament buildings. And the tour guide, they join kind of a little tour there, and the tour guide takes him all over these buildings, beautiful architecture, and finally takes him to the central foyer and points to the large pillars. Each has a little fresco, a figure of an important person depicted right at the top of the pillar. And the tour guide points at one picture and says, this is Aristotle, for government must be based on knowledge. Here is Socrates, for government must be based on wisdom. And there is Moses, for government must be based on law and so on. Then the guide says, any questions? And Muhammad says, where is Jesus Christ? The guide seems confused by the question. So Muhammad says more loudly, more clearly, thinking that he just didn't understand his accent. And he says, where is Jesus Christ? And the guide says, why, why should Jesus be here? Muhammad replies, well, I, I read in the Christian Bible that the law was given through Moses, but that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So where is Jesus Christ? And Carson reflects, here was a man steeped in a religion that did understand law, that did understand demand, that did understand obedience, and could even see law as a grace. But now, for the first time, he was being struck with the excellency, the superlative excellency of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. Amen. What is it about the excellency of grace and truth in Jesus Christ that is so striking to us? It's so captivating to so many of us. Even when you're not a Christian, so many people are attracted to Jesus. Why is that? Well, let's figure out what John means by this combination of grace and truth. It's an unusual combination. Now, I told you it's parallel to abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So Jesus is full of grace and truth because God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I've heard people talk about this passage as in there's grace and there is truth. can be too gracious. It can be too truthful. So when I talk to people, you know, I can't just be too straightforward with them. i got to soften it a little bit with grace. But if I'm just giving grace, grace, and grace to them, then I'm not going to tell them the truth. And so people kind of try to balance it. I'm just going to respectfully disagree with that. I don't think that's what this passage is about at all. I don't think there's contrast. I don't think there's balance. I think those are complementary terms. And because they point to Exodus 34, 6, this is all 
perfectly united in the nature of God himself. So let me talk a little bit about this. Grace here is, it's almost like it's modified by truth. But truth not in a sense of a list of propositions or, or an intellectual understanding of something. Truth is in a sense of truthfulness, faithfulness, loyalty. Because remember, that's what Exodus 34, 6 says. God is abounding in steadfast love, which is grace, and faithfulness, meaning that God is staying true to himself, to his nature. So whatever expression of grace that God has for us, whatever love that he gives to us, it is consistent with who he is. It is bound by his own faithfulness, by his own covenant loyalty to his people. I don't think we can understand grace, much less grace and truth in this passage, unless we root our understanding in the covenant relationship of God with his people. Remember, Exodus 33 and 34 is the key to this. When God sees Moses on Mount Sinai, and God reveals himself, he proclaims his name. This is a covenant name. It's not a name for everybody. It's a name for his people. He wants his people to know by that name, Yahweh, I am, the self-existent one, the covenant God, the God who, who has committed himself to his people. So when God says, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, he means that he is faithful in the expression of that love to his people. He's committed himself to love his people, even though his people often did not love him. The Old Testament is full of stories of unfaithfulness of God's people, and yet God's faithfulness remains. This is what grace is, God determining to remain faithful to his people, even though they are often, we are often unfaithful to him. Grace is loving someone steadfastly, even when the object of your love rejects you, refuses to love you, betrays you, and disregards your love. Grace is faithfulness to the unfaithful. Grace is the essence of God's covenant with his people. Grace is the essence of his relationship with us. So when John says, here comes Jesus revealing God as he is, his glory shining through him, and he is full of grace and truth, he's saying God is full of faithfulness to his covenant promises. God is loyally revealing his love to his people that don't love him back. But God remains faithful. He remains true to his covenant commitment to love his people. So Jesus is, in that sense, full of grace and truth. True grace, faithful grace, loyal covenant, steadfast love to his people. He's full of covenant loyalty. He's full of consistent, unwavering love for his people. You see, grace is not sentimental. We really should try to avoid this common misconception of grace as this sort of laid-back, 
chill attitude toward other people's shortcomings. It's as if God looks at our sin and he says, oh, you know, whatever, doesn't matter, everybody's flawed in some way, nobody's perfect. That's not what God does because his grace is faithful. It's bound by his covenant commitments. He's taken us seriously. He's taken who we are seriously. It's so important to root our understanding of grace in God's story of dealing with his people. It's grace and truth. It's steadfast love and faithfulness. There is depth to God's grace. There is costliness to God's grace. It's not sentimental. It's not God wanting to see us as better than we really are. It's not God closing his eyes to what we are. Grace is clear-eyed love. Grace is God choosing to love us forever, even knowing us as we are. His grace is truthful in that sense. His grace is faithful in that sense. And we see that expressed ultimately, most brightly, supremely in Jesus. Jesus was full of grace and truth in the manger. The Word became flesh. You see, Jesus was so committed to us because he has promised himself to us through his covenant. So committed to love us that he became, actually literally became, one of us. And he has experienced all that we have experienced. I mean, that's Christmas, right? We celebrate that. But there's so much depth to that. There's so much cost to that. There's so much pain to that. That Jesus would say, because I am the Lord, I abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm full of grace and truth. I'm going to faithfully love you, even to the point of becoming like you, coming into your world, coming into your love, sharing what you have. I mean, isn't that what love is? Faithful love, not sentimental love. You see, sentimental love stops us from getting too involved with people. It's just, we're just saying nice things. We're ignoring things that are happening in a person's life. But true love, this truthful grace, that faithful grace, moves God to get involved with us. And so he comes into our world, he becomes a baby, he grows up like we grow up, and he experiences everything we experience So that when we go to God in prayer and we say, God, but you just don't know, he says, I do know. I do know. I've been there. I've done that. I know exactly what you're dealing with. Scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted exactly as as we are, except that he never gave in to sin. Which, in effect, is saying he's experienced temptation to a much greater level because we give in and temptation stops. He never gave in. So the degree of temptation is so much higher for him. In his life, Jesus was full of grace and truth. The word dwelt among us. We talked about last week about God becoming vulnerable, God becoming soft, becoming breakable and killable. 
And so whatever troubles we have in life, he has experienced that. And as he lived, he lived not only under the same conditions as we live, but he lived much better than we live. Jesus was full of grace when he lived a life perfectly under the law of God. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. Faithful. Now this is grace and truth together. This is faithful kind of grace. This is loyal kind of covenant kind of grace. Where he says, I'm going to come into your experience and I'm going to live out your life, but I'm going to do it better on your behalf so that whatever I accomplish can now apply to you. You know, it's similar to somebody coming to your house because they know you're struggling and cleaning your house and saying, I'm going to do something in your circumstances for you so you would benefit from it. Now, of course, the incarnation is much greater than that. But it's the same dynamic, God coming into our life and is saying, I'm going to do things you do, but I'm going to do it perfectly. And it's going to apply to you. You're going to benefit from that. Jesus was full of grace and truth in his suffering and on the cross. We can't get over that. That God would become like us, but then God would take our sin upon himself. And because he was made soft, because he was made breakable, he was also killable. And so he comes to the cross unjustly accused, railroaded by the political powers of the day. He goes to the cross, and in the fullness of grace and truth, he keeps his covenant promises to us, loving us even through death, loving us to death. Jesus dying on the cross is an expression of that steadfast love and faithfulness. Because when God made a covenant with his people, he knew that we were going to break it. He knew it, of course. And the way the covenant was made with Abraham, it allowed for God to fulfill the obligations of both sides. And that is exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus died for our sins, taking the penalty, yes, restoring the honor of God, yes, conquering our enemies on the cross, yes, even death itself, that has no power for us anymore. The penalty of the law satisfied. God's wrath satisfied by a perfect sacrifice in this earthly tent. He was certainly full of grace on the cross. And then on that first resurrection morning, Jesus was full of grace, the glory shining, bright morning, angels in white apparel, shining, brilliant glory of God. Jesus, full of grace, extending the offer of new life to us and saying, I am going before you. I'm going to experience this new human existence, this new restored, renewed human life before you do, but I'm going to make sure that you follow me into this new, renewed creation. You will be, Jesus says, like I am. There will be a time when we will be like him, we'll have a body like his, we have a perception of reality like his. We have a relationship with God like he does. And finally, Jesus is full of grace, that covenant faithfulness in his promise to return and rule over us and over this world. 
just as he has kept every other promise he had made for us. He will keep his promise to return and to be with us forever and to restore this world and to renew this creation and to prepare a place for us, a place in which we can dwell with God, God dwelling with people in that beautiful city, in the renewed creation of God, the new heaven and the new earth, where he will rule over us perfectly. All these things, all that Jesus has done in the manger, in his life, in his suffering on the cross, in the resurrection, in the empty tomb, even things that he is yet to do when he returns, they're all expressions of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, his grace and truth. And the point here is that this grace, it doesn't waver, it just continues to be expressed to us. And so we will never run out of that grace because God in his fullness allows us to experience his steadfast love and faithfulness that abounds in him. This is what John means when he says that we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. That's his fullness. That's what Jesus brings to us. Now let's talk about how it influences our lives today. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So if you don't understand the fullness part of it, we can't understand how we receive it. You have to start with Jesus. And like Muhammad, you have to ask the question, where is Jesus Christ in the sermon? Where is Jesus Christ in this passage? Where is Jesus Christ in my life? Because if he's not there, there's no fullness from which this grace can influence us. We need his fullness. We need to see him as he is. We need to know him as he is to get the grace upon grace. And Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He has an inexhaustible supply of grace. The sun does not run out of warmth and light. And Jesus does not run out of grace for us. I love the story. It's in several Gospels, but in Mark 5, for example, there's the story of the woman who suffered for many years from a discharge of blood. She spent all her money on the physicians, and now she's poor. She's still sick. She can't function right. And she hears about Jesus coming to town, and she has this idea in her mind. Now remember, this is a person who's been isolated by her community already. She's on the, on, on the outside of, of the social and religious life of her community. But she hears about Jesus, this, this Jesus who is full of grace and truth that has come into her town. And she's thinking, if I can just touch the fringe of his clothing, that's all I need. She's thinking, if I can just touch a little bit of something that touches him, I would be healed. And so she finds him. And the crowds are pressing in. Jesus doesn't even know what's happening. You know, he says, who touched me? There's so many people. And the disciple says, there's all these people who are pressing against you. But he knows something special happened. Because this woman in faith just touches the fringe of his garment. And she is healed. This is how full Jesus is of grace and truth. 
This is how much he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, that even just a minimal touch, just a little bit, just a glance of faith at him heals us and changes us and transforms us. I love that story of just how little it takes from us because of how much Jesus has to give us. I'm sure there are circumstances in your life when you feel like, I don't, I don't have much here. I can't make a lot of effort. I can't get to the core of who he is. I can't spend hours with him. But you can touch his garment. Get just close enough to him that you can touch him. And he will help you because he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is full of grace and truth. And it's from his fullness that we have all received not just grace, but grace upon grace. These are precious words. And I'm sure if I opened it up to testimonies, we'll get a couple at least of people saying this passage was important to me. Because when I felt like I was running out of grace, God gave me more grace. And it was grace upon grace to me. And I didn't know God had so much grace in him until I felt it, until I experienced it. I love also that John says, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, there is a sense in which there's a collective all, that the whole church, the whole people of God, Israel and the church together, we've all received grace upon grace because we were given the law, and upon that grace we have received the revelation through Christ in the gospel. Yes, that is true. We can say that all of us, by just purely just by belonging to the church, to the people of God, we've received multiple expressions of grace through Christ. But there's also a sense in which all of us could say and should say, I have received that. All of us, individually, each person, each Christian, each follower of Jesus, each person of God can say that I have received grace upon grace from the fullness of Christ. This is very encouraging to me. There are no special people in the church. It's not like I can say, well, I have more grace than you. It doesn't come from my fullness. It comes from the fullness of Christ who gives us grace upon grace. All of us, each of us, if you are truly in Christ, this is a mind-blowing thought, if you are truly in Christ, that you have his fullness. He's fully yours. You can experience him as he is. We've all received grace upon grace. But how? Let me give you three directions briefly that you can kind of follow this flow of grace, this influence of grace in our lives. And I'm sure one or two of these will be more important to each of us. And we can pick what's more important to us out of these three, what is more meaningful to us right now, what is more relevant to us right now. Number one, we receive his saving grace. We receive his saving grace. John says we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen it. What does he mean? There were lots of people that were around Jesus, crowds following him, people coming and going, Herod, 
and Pilate, all these different people, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these people, have they all seen his glory? I don't think so. Many of them, though physically seeing his face, rejected him. He came to his own, but they didn't receive him. Why? They didn't see his glory. John did. The disciples did. We do. But not everybody saw his glory. Why? Well, there's a spiritual blindness. You see, they were spiritually blind. They were spiritually dead. And so they had to be brought back to life so they could see the glory of Christ. And it happens when the Holy Spirit opens our spiritual eyes. Two chapters later in John 3, John is going to relate this account of Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, a smart person, a theologically astute person, a religiously accomplished person, person of great reputation. And yet when Nicodemus comes to, to Christ and says, what is happening here? And Jesus says, you, do not, you don't know? You are the teacher of Israel? You teach the Bible to people? You don't know what's happening here in my life? And John says, quoting Jesus, you must be born again. You must be born again. Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't understand my glory. You can't perceive my glory until you are born of the Spirit. There's a spiritual transformation. That's grace. That's what typically we refer to as saving grace. Now, all grace is saving, of course. God continues to save us. But there's that moment, there's the transformation in the beginning of our spiritual walk where we encounter Jesus and we see his glory for the first time because the Holy Spirit opened our eyes. And we look at Jesus and we say, that's who you are. This is what you're like. You are glorious. I didn't see that before, but now I see it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening our hearts so we can be... So we can see who Jesus is and be drawn to him. And as we are drawn to him by faith, we are being transformed. We're becoming new creatures. Creatures who have the spiritual sight to perceive his glory. So if you have been converted, if you are a Christian, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to be converted, is to live this new life with God. If you are a Christian... You can say, I have seen his glory. I know what Jesus is like. I know what God is like through Jesus, and it has changed me. I'm different because of that. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. Oh, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Has it reached you? Have you had an experience of his grace that has transformed you, it saved you, it made you a new person? And the big distinction is that now you can see Jesus' glory. Do you know Jesus? Have you been transformed by the Spirit's work in your life, by the saving grace of Jesus. Now, secondly, we receive his sanctifying grace. So, saving grace, sanctifying grace. I'm using an old biblical word because I needed to be alliterated in this outline. 
I would use another word, transforming grace. A grace that continues to change us. Sanctify means to make it holy, to make it different, to change it into something different and better. And so when we come to Christ through that wonderful experience of the second birth, birth from above when the Holy Spirit changes us, that's not the end of it. Now you're just a baby. You're a baby that can see, but you're a baby. And God is going to now raise you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to feed you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to shape your character. He's going to raise you as a good parent raises their child. And so throughout our lives, what God is doing with us is he's sanctifying us. He's making us more like Jesus. He's making us more holy practically. He's changing us to become more like the kind of people he wants us to be. And so in a sense, there's no such thing as a converted Christian who is not growing. We're all growing. Now we can grow faster or slower than others. But we're all growing because part of God's covenant commitment to us. Now go back to the steadfast love, to the grace and truth understanding of covenant, faithful, loyal kind of love and grace towards us. That loyalty is expressed in God's continuing to change us continuing to mold us until one day we are perfect in his sight. Perfect in his sight. Yes, it's gradual. There's a progressive kind of work that God is doing. But there will be a day, there will be a moment when we will be made completely perfect. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever sin you have in your life, whatever remnants of your sinful nature that are just bothering you, and you hate yourself because you're still part of that, and it's so hard, it'll be gone. And God will get the kind of people he wants. That's glorification. So this grace is also future grace. God will give us even more grace, grace upon grace, even in the future. And finally, we receive his sustaining grace. Sustaining grace. Uh, I think we don't talk about this aspect of grace enough, frankly. Yes, we talk about the theological ideas of salvation, conversion, regeneration, that initial change. We talk about the ongoing work of sanctification. But there's something else that God does for us. It's not meant to change us necessarily, but it's meant to help us. It's meant to support us. It's it's that, the kind of conversation that a parent has with her child when you're not really trying to instruct them. You're not trying to advise them. You're not trying to change the course of their decision-making. You're just there to help them. You're just listening mostly. You're just saying encouraging words. You're trying to find a way to affirm them, a way to help them get through this experience. This is God's sustaining grace, and he does it for us. I am... An example of that. You are an example of that. If you look back on your life, and I have these conversations with people just, just to make sure that what I'm experiencing it is normal, and it is. All Christians affirm that, and there's, there's, a, there's a testimony that most of us have along these lines. Where I look back on my life, and I look at a particularly difficult period of my life, and, and I don't remember how I got through it. I just don't remember Sometimes if I've journaled, I can go back and kind of put pieces together. But I do know that I got through it, because I'm here. I got through it. It didn't break me completely. 
It didn't demolish me. It didn't destroy me. So I'm here. I've survived it. And as I look back, I also find many blessings through that time that maybe I didn't see then, but I see now that God has done things in my life. Now, you, some of you are familiar with this dynamic. I heard you talk to me about that. This is God's sustaining grace. God was there, even if I couldn't exactly see him. But he sustained me, he sustains you, and when you're dealing with difficult issues in your life, God is there and he gives you grace upon grace. And looking back, you say, oh yes, God gave me enough. There was enough grace. There was enough grace when that grace ran out, God gave more. And when that ran out, God gave more. And so if you are in that difficult season right now, you may be dealing with a a, a tremendous degree of temptation right now. I don't know that, but you know. You might be steps away from walking away from Jesus today. You might be so hard-pressed by something that seems so appealing to you, whether it's a particular choice at work, whether it's sexual temptation, whether it's breaking a relationship with somebody, but something that is sinful and yet it's so beautiful to you. And you're losing sight of God's glory which is more beautiful than that, and it's more appealing than that, but you're losing sight of that, and you're drifting. I want to encourage you today that God has enough grace to get you through that experience. That as you look to Him, He will give you grace upon grace. And later, maybe years later, maybe decades later, you look back and you say, man, I was so close to abandoning this whole thing altogether, and yet, He's kept me. He's kept me by His sustaining grace. I just want to tell you, you don't have to walk away from Jesus. It's not too hard. No, it's too hard for you. It's too hard for me. But it's not too hard for Jesus. His faithful, covenant, loyal, truthful grace is going to prevail in your life. So trust it. Rest in it. He will sustain you. We sing this song, So teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you are my hope and stay. These are meaningful words to us, those who who deal with temptation. When you feel like, "I, I can't stand anymore, I'm falling, but God will catch you. You see, his sustaining grace out of his fullness is flowing into your life, and you will have enough. It will be sufficient for you to persevere. So if you're wondering today, you're looking at your life, you're looking at your heart, and you're saying, I don't know if I can handle this. I don't know how much longer I can resist this. He's got grace for that. He's got enough grace for that. Now, you may be in a different circumstance. You may be hurting. You may be suffering today. You may be just barely here. Maybe you're not here and you're listening to this online and you're saying, I don't know if I can go on. It's just, it's too hard. It's too painful. It's too confusing. I'm being crushed. I feel like I'm just about to be destroyed here. God has grace for that too. There's enough grace to sustain you even through that experience. Trust him. Like that woman that has been sick for years, And Jesus comes to town. She's not trying to do too much. She's just trying to touch him. Touch him. Touch him and he will sustain you. Touch him in your pain. Touch him in your confusion. 
Some of you are dealing with doubts, tremendous doubts. Go to him. He's full of grace and truth. And out of his fullness, you will receive grace upon grace. For many of us, the lamentations promise of new mercies every morning is precious. Because you're going to bed at night and you're saying, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow. And there's a part of me that hopes I don't wake up tomorrow. But if I wake up tomorrow, I don't know if I can get up. And I don't know if I can go on. And I don't know if I can handle my, my day. And you go into sleep with those thoughts. And then you wake up in the morning. And you're saying, there's a new mercy for me today. There's new mercy. I've used up the old mercy last night when I was falling asleep, but God, in his sustaining grace, has prepared a new supply of mercy for me today. Grace upon grace coming into my life. I don't know if I'm going to make it tomorrow, but today, today, there's enough mercy for me. Out of that faithfulness, out of that abounding, steadfast love and faithfulness of God, new mercies come. Friends, your sin cannot exhaust his mercy. Your suffering cannot exhaust his mercy. Your disobedience cannot exhaust his mercy. There's uninterrupted supply of grace that is coming directly from Jesus, who is full of it, and it's coming into your life. And so whatever you're dealing with today, he's got grace for that. Specifically, it's made for that, and he's sending it to you, and he will sustain you. You're like a garden, and Jesus is like a gardener, and he comes into your life, and he weeds, and he fertilizes, and he prunes, and he makes it a beautiful garden for you, but you can trust him. You can trust him because he himself became part of that garden, Rose of Sharon, Lily of the Valley, came into that, that whole experience, and he's working from within. So when he's sending you grace, when he decides to do something in your patch of the garden, he does it because he knows exactly what the problem is. He knows exactly how much grace to give you. And when that runs out, he'll give you more because he will sustain you. In some ways, his grace is always surprising to us because it's undeserved and we know ourselves. But at the same time, it's always reliable. It's an amazing paradox of the Christian life. Grace that is always surprising and yet grace that is always reliable. So my encouragement to us today, even as we come to the table, is to trust in that grace, to receive from His fullness grace upon grace, to rest in His covenant promises, knowing that His grace is not sentimental, His love is not fleeting. It is rooted in these faithful, loyal covenant promises of God, which are themselves rooted in his faithful, loyal nature of who he is. And so take advantage of God's grace this morning.